Well, good morning. You can be turning again to the book of Jude this morning. As we continue our study, we'll be looking at verses 12 through 16 together. Can I tell you, while you're turning there, can I tell you about Art Baker's morning that he's had this morning? He came here this morning. I asked him if I could share this with you. Got here early, saw the passage we were going to be looking at, sat and read it, and he said he thought to himself, boy, another rough one. Is it ever going to get happier? <laughs> and he told me that, and I said, uh, Art, I can, I can sympathize with that feeling. As we're working our way through this, uh, it's been such an urgent letter. It's such a, it's such a dark situation that he's dealing with. It is, uh, we continue this morning to hear things that are hard to hear, that are sad to hear. Uh, I hope that as we go through it this morning, I might be able to convince you to think of verses 12 through 16 a little bit differently than that, even though in verse 17 we are going to come next week to, to, a, to a very different uh, feeling as he turns to the Christians and he says, but you, beloved, and he speaks of very different things. But one way we're going to be able to see the passage before us is as a contrast between uh, two kinds of shepherds contrast between false shepherds and our true shepherd. And in seeing it that way, I hope that we will find uh, not just uh, helpful, needed warnings and reminders, but also great encouragement as our minds are brought again to our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, If you haven't been with us, let me just recap a few things that we've been seeing up to this point, up to Jude verse 12. We heard, for example, last week uh, a series of specific charges being leveled against these false teachers, these imposters among them, that he told us in verse 4, don't really belong. They have insinuated their way into the community, acted like they believe, acted like they are, they are really of us, but they are not. Uh, last week we heard a set of charges leveled against them. We heard God's verdict given upon these men, and we heard the sentence of condemnation that was passed against them as the one enthroned in heaven says, Woe to you, and gives this very fearful declaration. Uh, so that has happened now in this letter. We've, we've heard God's verdict. We've heard the condemnation. But we know all too well sometimes, don't we, that just because something has been identified and called out, that doesn't mean that the consequences of it simply go away. They don't just vanish. And what we find in verses 12 through 16 is another set of descriptions. This time, though, ones that shed light on these individuals from a very different angle. This time it's not about what they do. Rather, it's about the effects that they have, the effect that their presence has on the congregation. It's the outcome of their way of life upon those in their midst. We will summarize what we're going to find here in verses 12 through 16 with these two headings. Verses 12 and 13, we're going to hear the disappointing promises of false shepherds. In verses 14 through 16, we can think of it as this contrast to that. Uh, We can think of it as, as the sure promise of the true shepherd. So this morning is all about promises. It's all about, as our minds are brought to these false teachers, it's all about the sure disappointment that comes when those who lead us away from the path of God offer us promises. There is only disappointment there, and that's one of the things we'll see abundantly clearly. 
Let's begin by reading this together. We'll just read verses 12 through 16 this morning. Uh, If you are able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? He begins with this designation he has used and will continue to use when he just says these, speaking of these false teachers. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. And Father, we do pause here and thank you for your word. We thank you for, we thank you for your kindness that's demonstrated as you give it to us. We should, we should often bring to mind the warnings of judgment that you have spoken of in your word that for many who are hard-hearted and will not listen to you, there will come a time when they will walk to and fro across the earth looking for your word and they will not find it. Lord, I think of that often and it always makes me so grateful that every week you allow us to come together to be a people submitted to your word, to hear from you, to praise you for it, to thank you for it. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us this morning to see the great treasure that lies in our hands and the great kindness that's being shown to us as you give us Jude 12 through 16 this morning. We know you give it to us because we stand in need of it right now. And so we thank you, and we ask you to help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you hadn't read verses 12 through 16, you might have felt as I read it why Art felt the way that he did this morning, especially if you've been here for the past several weeks. Uh, It does not lighten up this morning. And as we come into verse 12, uh, he's still talking about these same imposters, But his emphasis changes dramatically. It's no longer talking about their condemnation. It's talking about the reality that they will disappoint. It's helpful to us to hear that because it reminds us of the situation that his hearers are in. He's writing to, to brothers and sisters who get up every Sunday morning and go to church with these guys. They've let them rise to a place of authority and teaching among them. They've they've been misled. They're confused about who this is. We read about these imposters that Jude is writing to with trembling and horror. But these are the ones sitting in in the pews beside Jude's beloved brothers and sisters. 
And these verses, verses 12 and 13, help us to remember that. He's writing to these people and urging them to understand that while they are being given certain promises of good things from these men, those promises will all disappoint them. He gives a number of these. And he puts them almost as if what he's doing is responding to some claims that those false teachers have been, have been making. I, we can identify really three, um, we can imagine three claims from these false teachers that Jude is responding to. The first one would be this. We can imagine them claiming, I give godly fellowship. Come with me, be around me, let me fellowship with you. What you will have is godly fellowship. And in response to that claim, here's what he says of them in verse 12. These men are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear. He's describing a common practice in the early church called the love feast. These are fellowship meals. And it seems that they would get together and share a meal, and this time would end in the taking of the Lord's Supper together. Uh, so it was not just fellowship. Rather, it was a time of worship through fellowship. Very intentionally created, a time designed to build each other up in their faith. A time designed to encourage weary brothers and sisters. You know what it's like to be in the midst of life as it is. And in particular, in times maybe where you're going through great dryness spiritually, you're encountering a lot of struggle, resistance from the world, temptation. You know what it's like to be in those sorts of times of life and then to have the chance to stop and to get together with people that you love who also love Jesus. You know the kind of refreshing that that can be. I've not really done this more than a couple of times been on a boat trip, but I can imagine it's like having been on a long boat trip and then seeing the shoreline, seeing the dock, and you know as soon as I pull in, I'm going to have this rest that I have been doing without for some time. It's an especially painful kind of disappointment then to be in a place like that, to be close enough to see the shore, and then without warning, just when you felt closest to rest, to suddenly shipwreck on rocks that were just below the surface of the water. Jude says that's exactly what these men are like. They come and sit down beside you in fellowship with no hesitation, totally seared conscience as to who they are and what they're doing. And they sit down beside you and you think... I mean, you're here at this love feast. You think that you're coming into a fellowship that's going to bring just the rest and encouragement that you need. And what you find is that their presence is the last thing that you expected, and your boat suddenly is split, and you're sinking. Now, just how does this happen? Well, we certainly get a sort of general rest from each other, just a, a rest of, of being among friends and being able to, to talk and, and laugh that's a rest, I hope, that we enjoy. But in light of what Jude has been describing and emphasizing, I think he points here to something more specific than that. I think you've got here a people who are battling against the temptations of this world. They're battling against the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. And they think, at last, I'm with God's people. 
Now I'm going to get some encouragement in my fight. I'm going to get some fuel to fuel me as I strive to walk hard after Christ. And unfortunately, they sit down beside this person. 2 Peter 2.18 characterizes the same situation and the same people. And he writes this. He says of the false teachers in these contexts, he says, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are, listen to how he describes them, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom when they themselves are slaves of corruption. Do you hear his description of the ones that are being sunk by these false teachers? They're, they're struggling. They're barely escaping those who live in error. And these men come along and entice them away just when they needed Christian fellowship the most. Just when they thought that they were going to be built up and encouraged on in the battle, they come to someone that they trust in a place that they, that they trust. And that person, by word and example, pushes them over the edge. Can you see why such strong language has been reserved for these men in this letter? Jude is writing to brothers and sisters that he loves. This is what's happening to them. As these men come in with no remorse to a people desperately hungry for godly fellowship, and they're actually shipwrecked. On the very people that they thought they could trust. And boy, doesn't that create in you a burning desire Doesn't that create in you a burning desire not to be that? It makes us stop and think. Uh, Have I kept in mind what a battle my brothers and sisters have been engaged in all week when we come together? What, What a fight they are in every day of their lives. What do they get when they get me? What do they get? What do they receive when God inserts me into their lives? Are they fueled and motivated and inspired to move toward Christ because of my fellowship with them? Are they inspired to be faithful in their fight? See, these men promise godly fellowship. And apparently, because of that, they've gotten close to many people who have then discovered them to be hidden, jagged rocks under the surface of the water. I give godly fellowship, they promise. Jude says, Do not be fooled. That road will not end in anything but disappointment. The second claim that they would give that Jude wants his hearers to understand is this false claim that they would be giving when they say, I give godly leadership. Not just fellowship, but in fact leadership. Verse 12 goes on to call them shepherds feeding themselves. Now the idea of feeding is there simply because that's what shepherds predominantly do with their sheep. But the idea is literally that the shepherds are shepherds who only shepherd themselves. They are shepherds who only care for themselves, for how they come out of these interactions in the end. Now, Jude describing them like this as shepherds feeding themselves 
uh, makes clear what we've already been seeing indications of, and that is that these are men who have come in and, in fact, assumed leadership positions in this congregation. It's been clear that they are, they're in a capacity that they have the ear of the church. So they've been rebuking, rebuking demons, we saw last week. They've been teaching about God's grace in a way that perverts it. These are men that have the ear of the congregation. And when Jude describes them like this, shepherds shepherding themselves, he's making a direct Old Testament allusion. He's, he's referring us back to Ezekiel chapter 34. And I would have you turn there for just a moment and so you can see this with me. I'd like to read the first 10 verses of Ezekiel 34 so we can see the, the full picture there that God provides. It's quite powerful. It's the kind of passage where if you don't have, uh, if you already don't have a sense of the context that it's written in, just read this and you'll know the context. You'll know what's going on. Ezekiel 34, verses 1 through 10. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd... And because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep, therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. Now pay special attention even to the way that he ended that last verse. Now what is the problem here in Ezekiel 34? The sheep are left without any care because the shepherds are feeding themselves. But they're not only failing to care for the sheep, because of who they are and what they're doing, he says, you're actually eating the sheep. You are consuming, you're devouring the sheep that you were supposed to care for. We'll see it even by the end of our text this morning that these shepherds who are only feeding themselves are using their interactions with the sheep, with their fellow brothers and sisters in the church as a means to benefit themselves, to gain an advantage for themselves. 
And you see in that passage in Ezekiel 34 the scope of the devastation that occurs in that setting. The suffering personally, the wandering with no one to call them back, with no one to go in God's love and retrieve. The devastation is manifold. I give godly fellowship. No, you don't. I give godly leadership. No. No, your leadership is described in Ezekiel 34. It's not a picture of godly leadership. The third declaration claim that they may make is this. I give spiritual provision. I give provision. Listen to me. Let me teach you and you will be blessed in your soul. You will grow spiritually as a result of my influence. And in response to that suggestion, Jude gives us two pictures. The first is he says they're waterless clouds swept along by winds. It's a picture pretty easy for us to understand. They promise much and then don't deliver. As he calls them that, he might be referencing the Old Testament again. Proverbs 25, 14 says this. It says, like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of gifts he does not give. Like clouds without rain is a man who boasts about gifts that he does not give. And what are they boasting of here? What is it that they're promising? Jude's told us enough by now to have a sense of this. We know of their lifestyle and their teaching to know the scenario here. Peter puts it like this in chapter 2, verse 19 of 2 Peter. He says, uh, we've read it already this morning, they promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. God's grace means that you are free, free to live outside the old boundaries that were so oppressive, uh, free of consequences, all of the pleasure in Christ, none of the responsibilities. Freedom. But at the end of that path, there's only going to be one thing, and that is bitter disappointment. The disappointment of unfulfilled promises. Trees, or excuse me, uh, clouds without rain. The second picture he gives is uh, fruitless trees in late autumn. It's the same idea, disappointed expectations. If you've been waiting for a tree uh, eagerly, By late autumn, you've been watching that fruitless tree, and you've been excited for one thing. You've been excited for late autumn, because come late autumn, there's going to be fruit. I still have some pretty strong memories. I've told you about how much I love different uh, different kinds of fruit. I remember the cherries in my grandparents' backyard at the right time of year. I couldn't wait to get back out there, because I knew what was going to be waiting for me. But by the time late autumn comes around and that tree is fruitless, you know some things. You know that if nothing has come by now, nothing is coming. And all that waiting and hoping has led to only disillusionment and disappointment. In fact, he says, he says that, that, that they are in fact twice dead, uprooted. Now what exactly does he mean there? There's a couple of things he might mean. He might mean that Uh, these men, before they were in the church, they were dead when outside of the church. But now having come within the bounds of the church, they show themselves yet again to be dead, twice displayed in their deadness. 
It might simply be, and I tend to think this is what he's doing, I think this is simply an emphatic way for him to convey how dead they really are. Twice dead. Not only have they come to bear no fruit, but furthermore, they're they're pulled up from the ground. There is no chance of any fruit here. There is no connection to any life. If you've been waiting for that tree to bear fruit, that's a bitter sort of disappointment. Especially if you're in a time and a place where you, you are starving, needing this kind of fruit, and you've been waiting for it because this is the context, this is the garden, this is the context where I'm going to be fed. So you've waited until late autumn, trusting these men. And late autumn comes and there is no fruit. Now that sort of disappointment of a spiritual provision that hasn't come continues into verse 13 where we read that they're producing no good fruit, but that doesn't mean that they're producing nothing. They are producing, just not producing fruit. What they're producing is a life on display worthy of shame, worthy to be ashamed of. Verse 13, he says, They are wild waves of the sea. Literally, says, foaming up their own shame. It's a pretty gross picture especially if you're applying it to a human being, foaming up their own shame. almost makes you think of vomit. I mean, this is is something that he writes with disgust as he's speaking of these people. Nothing produced from outside in uh, producing a fruit. Uh, The only thing that's been produced has been frothed up naturally from the inside so that the things they do, the words they say, it's just their own shame. And we sit here in the context of God's people speaking about shame. Do Christians know shame? Once the Lord saved you, did you take a deep sigh and say, and and have you you noticed an absence of any shame in your life from that moment forward? That's not the way that we experience our life, is it? As we continue to strive against the flesh, Christians know shame. And in a a particular way, too, because we have God's Holy Spirit living in us whose job it is to sanctify us. And and how he does that so often is by exposing our weaknesses, exposing our, our, our faults. And when we're confronted with those things, they are things worthy of being ashamed of. And we feel that. That's no different in a believer. The experience of shame and the sense of it as shame. What sets us apart as God's chosen people is this. It's that we as Christians now, we have been given something to do with our shame. Colossians 2.14 declares that God, having forgiven us all our trespasses, has actually made us alive together with him. We're not uprooted. We have have roots connected to the life-giving vine of Christ. And it says in that, in that passage in Colossians that he made us alive together with him by doing something. It says he did that to us by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Paul says there, this he set aside nailing to the cross. And in so doing, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. He's referencing there our enemy, Satan, who is called the accuser in God's word. I remember, I will never forget, 
hearing uh, in such a powerful way. That passage in Colossians 2, uh, taught on by John Piper years ago, and he, he spoke with such... Um, you, if you've heard John Piper, you know what I'm talking about. But, but he, he fleshed this out in a way that, was, that has been forever so helpful to me. He said, Satan the accuser has one weapon to use against us before God. It is the weapon of unforgiven sin by which he may accuse us to the righteous, perfect, holy throne of God. That's what he has. But when Jesus bore my sin in his person as he died and suffered the judgment of God. See, this is what Paul means when he says, in so doing, God disarmed our enemy. And it further says that when he did that, he put our enemy to open shame, it says. Ah, now shame's back in the picture. Who's bearing the shame now? The one who would dare to accuse someone for whom Jesus has died. So we read in Romans 8, 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? See, this is what sets us apart. We continue to experience the reality of our sin, and we are ashamed of what we find. But we have something to do with our shame. We take our shame to the foot of the cross. And in so doing, we display what God has declared about us, that we are new people. We're not who we're going to be one day, but we're not who we were. We are a new people. We're a people, he tells us, whose lives are characterized not by sinlessness, but by confession of sin and repentance to God. So that John says in 1 John chapter 1 that as a result of what God has done in us in those ways... Because God has worked like that, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is how it works. It's a pretty wonderful situation for us. Glorious for Christ, less wonderful for him. He had to do all the work. He had to pay all the prices. But for us who are found in Christ, it's our everything. It's our life. It's our hope. But what if I have no part in Christ? If I hate his claim of authority on my life and the notion that he would ever dare to tell me who I am to be, what I am to do, if I'm one, if I'm part of the chorus of Psalm 2 that thinks of Jesus on a throne and says, let's figure out what we can do to throw his chains off of us. His claim of authority is a chain shackling us. Let's throw him off. If I've joined that chorus, what do I have to do with my shame? My shame is my own. I have nothing to do with it except for what I will do with it, and that is I will hide it. I will excuse it. I will love it. And I'll return to it again and again. Peter tells us it's just exactly like dogs and pigs. I remember hearing someone speak about this very eloquently. Look, uh, all the twos, 2 Peter 2.22, same context as we have here in Jude. He says this, What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to his own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Why do they do that? Because a dog is a dog and a pig is a pig. That's why. 
You can take a dog and clean them and train them neat tricks. These days you can have a wardrobe lined up for him that matches the day of the week. But he's, he never ceases to be what he is. He has no ability to fight against his own nature. He will always be a dog. And the moment he throws up in the backyard, he'll prove it to you. And you can take a pig in the same way and clean it up. But when it sees that mud pit, you know what it's going to do because a dog is a dog and a pig is a pig. And these men, as the believers around them continue to watch them and live among them, they prove the same proverb. You can take a man and clean him up and teach him some of the right words to say and the, thing, the places to sign. But if there's been no change in his life that is supernatural, bringing life where there was death, all you got to do is wait and watch. They'll show you who they are. And when they do, they're fulfilling the Proverbs that God has been giving us from the beginning in warning and in insight. These imposters have labored a great deal among the believers in their midst, and yet it has ended with no fruit to show except the foam of their own shame. So these are the three claims that Jude is addressing here. They promise godly fellowship, godly leadership, spiritual sustenance, and every one of them leads to disappointment. And we're seeing in that a principle that we need to, we need to take note of and hold it to be true. Any path you would be offered that would offer you good things if only you will wander away from or beyond this humble obedience to Christ as he's revealed himself in his word. Any path offered that would promise you good things, if only you will wander from that. It doesn't matter what the claims are. The end will be the same. The end will be disappointment. He says it's, it's, it's the same thing as, you know, they used to plot their long journeys by plotting according to the stars, right? He says it's the same thing as trying to plot your journey based on choosing stars that are not fixed. They're wandering stars. How, how much hope do you have in finding the destination you seek if you, are, if you are plotting out your path on the basis of wandering stars? You have as much hope there as you would by believing these offers and these promises. Utterly unreliable and inevitably disappointing. And the fate of them and any who would follow them is the same as the fate that was predicted earlier in Jude with those sinful angels who rebelled against God, refusing to be content with what he's given them. We noticed it back then that this, this same description of darkness in judgment is what awaits them. As we come into verses 14 through 16, the same men are being emphasized but we suddenly have inserted into our text a, another promise. We've heard, we've heard three promises here. Fruitless, hopeless promises. Here comes another promise. But this time the promise is not coming from a false human shepherd of God's people. This time it comes from the Lord himself. It's a promise that God has been making throughout the story of human redemption. The promise that he is coming for his people.
Remember where we are here, verse 14. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones. Now, we should just quickly mention uh, something about the source here. He is quoting someone else. What's the, uh, what's the source of this quotation? He, he makes his point here in verse 14 by referring to what was then a very well-known piece of literature called the Book of Enoch. This is a book that was not really written by Enoch of, of Genesis. Uh, it's not an inspired work of Scripture at all. No religion has ever held it to be inspired Scripture. The Jews didn't, Catholics. This is not an inspired piece of, of literature. But its teachings are well known for them. A useful uh, picture for him to pull from. And there are, we have it now, there are plenty of statements in Enoch that are true because they confirm the teaching of Scripture. And this is a good example of that, this particular statement. Has the Bible revealed to us that God is sending, God, God is going to come to us, and when he comes, he's coming with hosts of angels? Deuteronomy 33.2 speaks of the Lord coming from Mount Sinai in that context, and it says that he came with 10,000 holy ones. We hear Zechariah in Zechariah 14.5, look forward to the day, he says, when the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. The Bible is very clear about that, that when the king comes, he comes with armies. And it's pretty striking then to think of Jesus' first coming uh, and his statement. You remember toward the end before he was arrested when his disciples drew out swords to fight for him and he rebukes them. You remember what he said? Matthew 26, 53. He says, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? It makes me imagine his first coming as coming as he always does with his armies and at a point stopping and saying, okay, from here I go on alone and coming and taking (coughs) on flesh, living, suffering, being mistreated, dying. All the while his heavenly host, tens of thousands of angels standing where they were commanded to wait for him. Because he had a job to do. And when he did it, he ascends back up to the throne of the Father. And we get that picture in Isaiah of him coming with the clouds before the throne of the Father, coming with hosts. Mission accomplished, and here they come back. When the king comes, he comes with armies. But see, some people have been bothered by this, that Jude would quote this line of first Enoch, if Enoch is not an inspired work. That's why we need to, to stop and and deal with this just a little bit. Uh, We've had some other controversies in Jude we've tried to really spend a minimal amount of time on because they're not the point. Uh, But let me just give you a a couple of of thoughts here before we move on. Remember some things. Remember that this has happened many times in the Bible. Paul quotes in the book of Acts a Greek poet, and he quotes him as he's writing about God. This man does not know God. He quotes words about God that that man uh, spoke or wrote and says, see, there's truth about There's some truth here, and he uses it to make his point. In Titus, he quotes a man from Crete that that he says was one of their own prophets. And in in doing that, he's making no positive statement about that prophet. He's making no statement about anything except the truth of that one sentence. In John 11, you have Caiaphas, who is an unbeliever, who is said to have prophesied about the fate of Jesus. 
That means nothing positive about Caiaphas himself, just that the statement was truth from God. And that's what we have here as he makes this reference. So enough with that. Now let's, let's, let's notice the point that Jude would have us... Well, why did he put it in here? Why did he choose this? What is the point that he's making? His point is, look how far you can go back. These statements and all such statements about God's coming in judgment, they all apply to these false teachers. We could do the same thing in our day today. Anyone who would choose to walk rebelliously against the way God has revealed himself in Christ and in his word, immediately they walk into the place that all of these condemnations have been writing about. It all becomes true of them the moment they would choose this path. He says in verse 14 that the truths in this prophecy did not apply only in its own time, but they are, he says, you notice the word also. It was also about these that Enoch prophesied. So we see in verse 14 the certainty of his coming, the certainty of the promise that God has given. Verse 15 makes clear the purpose behind that coming. And his emphasis is pretty specific. It can be seen uh, easily in two words that are repeated. Can I read verse 15 aloud again? See if you can notice the two words. I'm reading from the ESV. uh, That come up four different times. What's his purpose in coming? Verse 15. To execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. I gave you hints there with my voice inflection. Did you notice the two words? That's nice when that happens. We don't have to work really hard to try to figure out what is he trying to emphasize. If he says something four times in a verse, that's probably what he's trying to emphasize. You have the words, ungodly, and all. Now, there are some things we need to notice about both of those points of emphasis, but let's stop first and just acknowledge what a great sense of hope this gives us, that this is a promise from God. All you and I have ever known in our life is a world in which wickedness exists and often seems to flourish and often seems to go unpunished. All we've ever known. Is a a world in which the God that we love and who has loved us is mocked or otherwise ignored. That's what we've known. And we have moments, don't we, of just feeling overwhelmed by those realities. And tempted to take on a cynical or hopeless outlook on the world. We need to remember that God has always promised that this age ends with him coming in justice and righteousness. That's what he's promised to us. Now notice these two emphases, ungodly. Christ is coming to judge ungodliness. That on its own serves us well. Because, you know, I mean, there are many of the wicked things that are done and said that cause direct personal pain to you, don't they? They're wrongs committed against you and against me and against the people that we love. It makes us weep to think about those things. And we know it's it's also not, not unclear in Scripture that God cares deeply for the suffering of his people, doesn't he? Psalm 147, God heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. 
Revelation 21, God promises us that there will come a day when he's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. He cares about the suffering of his children. But listen, when somebody defrauds you or deceives you or harms you or hates you, that person's greatest problem is not you. Because he wasn't made for you. She was not born to bring you glory and to represent you well. But they were made for God. And at its heart, the judgment of God comes out against sin, fundamentally because sin is rebellion against him. We are indeed uh, valuable collateral damage. But God is the offended party. And it will be ungodliness that will be judged. The other word that's used here these times is the word all. He comes, uh, verse 15, to execute judgment on all. All the ungodly. All their deeds of ungodliness. All their harsh words spoken against God. You remember the, the, uh, some of the closing words of Ecclesiastes where it says, The end of the matter all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. That may be, at least for me, that's the most well-known. That's what I remember most from Ecclesiastes, the the ending portion. Um, You know, that's not the way that the book ends. There is one more verse after that. The last thing he says after that, he starts with the word for. gives us the reason that we ought to think that way. Verse 14, ending on Ecclesiastes, he says, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. That's another one sentence and two uses of the word, in that case, every. It's not been that long ago that Bobby preached from 1 Corinthians 4, which speaks of the return of Christ. It says, Who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart? So what Christ will judge when he comes is ungodliness. And what will escape his judgment is nothing. Nothing will escape his judgment. All will be judged, but not all will find conviction. Not all will be convicted. He says in verse 15, to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly. There's a difference between those groups for one and only reason, and its name is Jesus. Jesus is why there's a difference between those two groups. Those who have received God's grace in Christ will be clothed in Jesus' righteousness, an alien righteousness that they did not earn. Psalm chapter 1 says that the wicked will not stand in the judgment. But God's children will stand in the judgment. Not because of us, but because of who we belong to. Now we end our time this morning with verse 16. It's how Jude ends this section. Uh, He's going to turn to address the children of God in verse 17. I would close us with this desire. I I want us to see just how intentionally he ends this chapter, or this section, excuse me, with verse 16. It, it, it sounds, it can sound like another list of characterizations. We've already seen like two lists of this. They are this noun and this noun and this noun, right? He did that in verses 12 and 13, did it in verse 8. Um, this is not that. This is not another list. This is a single picture, a single but full-orbed picture. Right? He, he calls them six different nouns in verses 12 and 13. There's only one noun he calls them in verse 16. Right? It's a single picture. 
The ungodly are judged, in verse 15, for their deeds and their words. Did you notice that? For all their deeds of ungodliness and all the harsh things they've spoken against him. The point he makes in verse 16 is this. All of those things are outworkings of the heart. A heart that distrusts and resents God. That's where all of this comes from. He says in verse 16, these are discontent grumblers. The ESV splits them as if they're two nouns. That's a noun and it's adjective. They're discontent grumblers. And when he diagnoses their heart problem with that word discontentment, it's not the normal word. This is the only place in the whole Bible that uses this word that we translate discontentment. It's not in the Greek Old Testament. It's not in the New Testament. It's used only here. It it has a very pagan context. It means to blame your fate. To blame your fate. Peter Davids tells us how that word had come to be used by the time of Jude. Um, And it's kind of interesting. He does that by giving us an example of, have you heard of Philo? Philo was was a famous ancient Jewish writer. He lived in this time. He lived when Jesus was alive. And we have a lot of his writings. He wrote about the wilderness generation, the ones we've already heard about in Jude, and he uses this word, and then he explains what he means by that word. So that's helpful for us. Listen to what he says about that wilderness generation. He said, But when water failed them, so that for three days they had nothing to drink, they were again reduced to despondency by thirst, and again began to, and here's the word, again began to blame their fate, as if they had not enjoyed any good fortune previously. For it always happens that the presence of an existing and present evil takes away the recollection of pleasure that came from former goods. Boy, that's a tendency we can relate to. These are a people, Jude says, with no memory for kindness or mercy. They are a fundamentally ungrateful people, distrusting and suspicious of God. And so verse 16 exposes not not, not words and deeds from verse 15, but the very heart behind everything that they are, everything that they do. They go around interpreting their life as if it were chaotically unfair. Or even worse, they interpret life as if it is controlled by a being who is evil, a being that they cannot trust. Their conception of God has never been more clear than it is right here in verse 16. They view God and his plans, the ones handed down from the apostles that we're supposed to contend for, they view God and his plans as suspicious and an untrustworthy path. And no wonder then that their alternate plan is to walk according to their own desires, which are sinful, because they sure can't trust the plan and the path that accords with God in his character and his will for us. And on that path of walking according to their own desires we find them engaging in two kinds of speaking. It says their mouth speaks pompous things, inflated things. And it tells us that they do that to flatter and impress so that they could gain from manipulation. Why do they speak this way? Why do they live this way? It's because they have a heart posture that distrusts and resents the authority and plan of God. And I hope you're here with us next week, because what we're going to see next week is that these are the very heart realities that he's described here in verse 16. These are the very heart realities that God has changed in us. When God reveals himself to us, 
and he gives us eyes to see him. We know it all too well, right? We don't immediately lose all of our sinful tendencies. We still fail. We are still prone to wander. But we cannot escape ever again the reality that God reigns, that he directs our path, and that his path is the best path. We won't love perfectly, but we will grow in the love of God, as he'll describe in verse 21. We'll never think perfectly, but we will come to trust God's goodness and wait on his mercy, as verse 21 describes. And those things will be true of us because, according to verse 24, we will be following a God who is able to keep us from stumbling. This is where we're going. But we cannot appreciate that until he gets to verse 16 and we finally see the heart exposed of these imposters. That God promises to judge because God loves his children and he protects his children, even through the very writing of a letter like this. And this morning, 2,000 plus years later from the writing, well, not quite plus from the writing, God is still protecting his children from these very men in our midst today and from these very temptations in our hearts today by leading us back to his word. And we thank him for it. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful. Lord, we thank you that you love us enough to to show us even what is unpleasant when we need to see it. We are so easily led astray so often, tempted by things that if we could only see what was inside of them, we would be horrified. So often we don't take the time to see. And so we thank you that you lead us to your word and lead us to go through it carefully so that we might have time to see what's really under the surface in all of these promises that would promise such attractive things if only we would not trust you. Lord, cause us to trust you more. We love you and we thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand with me for our benediction this morning from Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. May the peace of God which surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. We are dismissed.